following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is James. I'm a member at Pillar Dumfries. Um, uh, this is, I was trying to think through, uh, sixth time maybe, uh, me preaching here. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just a joy to be back every time uh, I come back. It's just, yeah, just so good to be with you all. And it's a, a privilege and a pleasure for me to be able to share God's word with you this morning. So we're going to be in John chapter 21. If you want to go ahead and turn there, I'm going to um, pray and then we'll read the passage and, uh, and dive in. Let's pray together. Father God, um, uh, we just ask for your help during this time, Lord. We come um, beaten, battered, bruised from this uh, week of uh, being in the world, and we uh, just ask for your help, Lord, your spirit's um, insight, wisdom, guidance as we look to your word. Um, we depend on you for life and breath and everything. Lord, and um, we also depend on you for our spiritual guidance. Help us to um, feed on your word today, and may it nourish our, our hearts and our souls. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so let's read. We're going to be reading John 21, verses 1 through 17. So let's go ahead and read here. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Amen. Well, um, many have called John chapter 21 an epilogue to John's gospel. So what is an epilogue? Uh, one dictionary calls it a concluding section that rounds out the design of a literary work. And what does a good epilogue do well? I'd say two main things. A good epilogue concludes and wraps up literary themes that have been uh, playing throughout the work. And secondly, it gives us a glimpse of the characters' futures. So it concludes, it wraps up the literary themes of the work, and it gives us a glimpse into the characters' futures. Um, as I was thinking about this, I was trying to think of a good epilogue, um, and the one that uh, kept coming to mind was Harry Potter. I don't know if you're familiar with Harry Potter. Uh, I'm a bit of a nerd, loved it. It was a big part of my childhood growing up. And uh, I was extremely satisfied by the epilogue in Harry Potter. I won't give any spoilers, so uh, just uh, know that. But, but in it, um, those two things are so clear. Um, some of the major theme themes in the books Harry Potter are family. You know, Harry is an orphan, uh, and he, uh, he grows up in search of a family throughout the entire series. And in the end, we, we see that he has a family of his own, right? We see who his wife is, and we get to meet his kids and what they're up to. But the, maybe the most uh, like uh, bullseye of the target theme in the whole series of Harry Potter was um, self-sacrifice as the ultimate good and the ultimate form of love. And, and uh, in the epilogue, we see that, that uh, Harry names one of his sons after two men in his life who, who gave their lives for Harry. And it's like this, um, this culmination of all the, you know, all the books um, have, been, uh, have been, all this story has been leading to, the, the, that main theme is just wrapped up so nicely. And I, I love that epilogue. Well, um, and the end of, a, you know, end of a good story, you know, begs the question, what happens next? What, what happens next to these characters? The end of a good story always wants you to begin the next story, you know? Well, like any good epilogue, John 21, it, it wraps up some of the key themes of the Gospel of John. But not only the Gospel of John, but Jesus' life and ministry more generally. But also we get to see a glimpse of what comes next for the, some of the key characters in the story. If you're an outliner, we're going to um, we're going to just go kind of scene by scene in, in this. Um, I've broken it up into three scenes. First, we're going to look at the relapse of the disciples in, uh, in John 21, verses 1 through 3. Then we'll see the revelation of Jesus in verses 4 through 14. And finally, there's the restoration of Peter in verses 15 through 17. And all of this together, I think, is going to show that Jesus' resurrection means a continuation of his earthly ministry through his redeemed disciples. 
Jesus' resurrection means a continuation of his, of his earthly ministry through his redeemed disciples. So let's get started. Our, our passage here starts with, after this. So why do, why do people call this the epilogue rather than just the end of John? You know, what makes it different than just an ending? Well, let's remind ourselves of what came before at the end of chapter 20. John gives us the purpose of the book here at the end of chapter 20. And, and you know, no one would have bat an eye if, if we would turn the page after chapter 20 and it was the Acts of the Apostles. You know, no one would have bat an eye. As a matter of fact, it's kind of what you expect to happen from his tone. But instead, we turn the page and rather than seeing, you know, the Acts of the Apostles, we, we get chapter 21 a brief continuation of the story, an, an epilogue. And in this continuation, we see that a group of the disciples are together. We're not told this, but like in verse 19 of chapter 20 and verse 26 in chapter 20, it's likely that they're still holed up, locked away, hiding in fear of the Jews. But in Peter fashion, he, uh, he's done waiting around. So he says, I am going fishing. You know, if you don't have um, purpose in your life, if you're not trying to accomplish something, there's something about uh, human nature that uh, makes us prone to simply fall back on doing what we know. You know, I grew up in um, Pontiac, Illinois. Um, I'm sure you've never heard of it. Uh, a small town, central Illinois, about 100 miles south of Chicago, uh, so surrounded by cornfields, bean fields. Uh, not much going on there. Uh, I actually lived uh, six miles outside of Pontiac, so my house was literally surrounded by cornfields and beanfields. You know, my closest neighbor was a mile away. And um, uh, there was a, a road that went by my house that went directly into town. It was a road that, um, that uh, had a speed limit of 55 miles per hour. And naturally, I grew up uh, watching my parents take that road at about 60, 62, 65 if we were in a hurry, my whole life. And I remember the first time I drove in my driver's ed class, the teacher actually took me down that road. And, um, and he didn't really give me any instructions. He just said, okay, let's go down 116. For a while, he probably wanted me to do some three-point turn on a dirt road or something, you know, and, um, and I was like, okay. I, I know this road. I know what to do here. I'm, I, so I got comfortable, and I thought, you know, I've been doing this you know, my whole life. I know what to do here. So I got up to 55, 58, 60, 62, 65, and I started looking around the steering wheel, and I asked my teacher, I said, where's the cruise control on this thing? And, uh, and he was like grading papers or something, you know, in the seat next to me. He looks up, and cruise control, what are you doing? He looks up my speedometer, he says, slow down, what are you doing? Well, that's just how you drive the road. That's, you know, that's all I knew growing up. But uh, I felt foolish, you know. But, but that's what I knew what to do. Uh, in my mind, that's how you drive that road. And I think this is uh, kind of what happens to Peter here. You know, I'm not meaning to give Peter a hard time. Uh, when I call this the disciples' relapse, I don't mean to say that there's anything inherently sinful for them to go fishing at this point in time. Maybe they were just hungry and needed some food. Um, uh, but it is clear in the way that John writes this uh, narrative uh, that the disciples were lost. They were afraid. They, they did not know what to do. 
And, and what do you do when the driving force of your new way of life is torn away from you? What do you do when you have ripped the rug out from under yourself by rejecting the foundation of your new way of life? And Peter has known two things in his life. One is fishing, and two is following Jesus. That's all he's known in his life. And here, when Jesus is no longer there to lead him, he falls back on what he knows, fishing. This is what we're supposed to see here. The Lord has orchestrated uh, these events, and John recorded them in such a way that I think they are meant to scream out to us as echoes of earlier events in Jesus' life and ministry. John is, um, most theologians agree, writing uh, his gospel somewhere around the early 90s uh, A.D., uh, which is um, you know, quite a few years after the other Gospels um, were written. And because of the way it is written, many believe that John wrote his Gospel assuming that his audience would have received and read or at least been familiar with uh, the other Gospels. So we can see echoes of other Gospel events in John. And this scene in particular is set, for, set up for us in verses 1 through 3. I'm just going to reread it here. Verses 1 through 3. After this... Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So this scene is set for us in 1 through 3 when we see that, that Jesus is going to be revealing himself to the disciples on the Sea of Tiberias as they're fishing. And as we see that, I think John is expecting us to make a connection to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, where we have at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, um, Jesus with his disciples on the Sea of Tiberias as the disciples are fishing. So if you, if you will, just turn with me there real quick. We're going to read this passage, Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. I want you to um, see this connection here that John is expecting us to make. So Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, it says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, being Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, um, we'll just pause there. The lake of Gennesaret is... Um, is also the Sea of Galilee, which is also the Sea of Tiberias. Those are all the same thing, uh, same body of water, um, uh, just has different names. So in Luke, it's the Lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out from them and uh, were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in, in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats <clears throat> so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, 
who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So we can see that um, in the Lord's irony, in his orchestration of all things, Peter comes back here when he doesn't know what else to do. Peter comes back to this lake and he begins to fish. Um, in the same lake with most of the same people, most likely in the same boat where it all began for him. And worse yet, as he toils all night, they catch nothing. Three years later, after all that they have experienced with Jesus, after Peter's denial of Jesus, after Jesus' death, Peter's worst nightmare seems to be realized. In his, in his mind, nothing has changed. After everything that they've been through, nothing has changed. He's in the exact same spot as he was before the call of Jesus. I mean, you can imagine the, the sick desperation that every day brings for these men, particularly for Peter, who explicitly denies Jesus publicly three times. Try to imagine the, the abandonment they must be feeling, the shame and the guilt they must have been wrestling with in their hearts as they know deep down that they deserve to be abandoned, just as they abandon him. You know, now, I don't want to you know, over-spiritualize this, but I do think there's something to be seen here in our broken, sinful human nature. That as we sin against God, even as we know we have been redeemed, we can focus so much on our own failures or sins that shame and guilt can blind us from seeing the promises that, that God has won for us. And when that happens, we, when we can't see the hope on the other side and we're drowning in shame and guilt, we often go back to what we know. We think our sin is the end of the story, so we embrace it. But brothers and sisters, just as the end of the story for Peter is not a night without a catch, going back to his old way of life, the end of the story for those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ is not that we are stuck in our sin. Okay, Peter's hope is the very same hope as ours. Peter's hope is Jesus Christ. And he shows up exactly at the right time here. So the second scene we have here is the revelation of Jesus. First we saw the relapse of the disciples. Now we see the revelation of Jesus. Let's read this next section, verses 4 through 14. <clears throat> Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. 
And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, one of, uh, none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So after diving down into the depths of uh, the disciples' despair, isn't it just amazing to read this next section? I mean, before just like getting into the text, we can, I think, just stand back and rejoice in it. Like, it just puts on display so beautifully the, the heart of God for his people through the person of Jesus. Here we have these broken, broken men who have nothing left. They've turned their, uh, they have turned back to fishing after having been promised that they would be made into fishers of men. And then Jesus shows up and, you know, changes everything for them in this moment. So I'm sure you notice the, the echoes of Luke chapter 5. Um, it's almost difficult to overlook them, right? I mean, it's, it's uncanny, the similarities there. We're back on the lake of Gennesaret. After a night of no fish, Jesus asks them to cast out again. They obey. They catch a huge amount of fish. The only real substantive difference in the two accounts is that in Luke 5, the net breaks and they have to call for help, right? But uh, here in John, John notes that the net was not torn. So this must have felt like crazy deja vu to them, uh, you know, experiencing such a similar scenario. It, it's like Luke 5, that was the, the beginning for them, right? But this, after Jesus' resurrection, is a, a new and even better beginning for them. There are a few, um, there are a few particular things that the disciples see about Jesus. Um, and so let's just walk through them real quick. Um, first, I think the disciples see that, that Jesus has not abandoned them. Jesus has not abandoned them. As we were discussing earlier with, this, um, with the state of mind that the disciples were likely in, they probably didn't know if they would ever you know, see Jesus again. Just the mere fact of him showing up in this situation, I think, speaks volumes of the, the grace of God. And maybe they're starting to remember what Jesus said in John 16 when he told them that he would go away from them and send the Holy Spirit. You know, he even says that it would be to their advantage that he would go away. But for them, you know, but is this the advantage? Like, well, what is the advantage? You know, they're, they're back to... Fishing, catching nothing. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, you know, is this the advantage? Catching nothing after a night of, of striving, going back to fishing? But for them to know that Jesus is still with them in some sense, that he has not abandoned them, uh, must have been a, a great comfort to them. Jesus has not abandoned them. Secondly, we see that Jesus is not powerless. Jesus is not powerless. You know, the Gospel of John is often divided into four parts. Um, there's the prologue uh, in chapter 1 through 16. Then there, there's what um, people call the book of signs. So um, after the prologue, all the way up until about chapter 13, there's seven um, signs that Jesus gives, prominent um, miracles that he gives. Third, there's the book of glory, which is the... Um, 
uh, from chapter 13 onward up to through the Passion and the Resurrection because uh, uh, Jesus often refers to his crucifixion as his glorification. And then there's the epilogue. So it's usually divided into four parts. And in the second section, the Book of Signs, Jesus does seven prominent miracles that are meant to reveal Jesus' identity and call people to faith in him. You know, like any good epilogue would, I think John 21 wraps up this theme by giving an, an eighth sign and one that is done simply in the presence of the disciples. Right? It's like it's, it's just for them to remind them who he is and what he can do. Again, as we look forward to the disciples' future ministry, it's like Jesus wants them to know that, the de that uh, death has not stripped him of his power in any way. As a matter of fact, this scene should have served as a lesson for them in abiding in Christ. All of their toil, apart from Jesus, produces nothing. Whereas obedience to Jesus produces more than they could ever imagine. You know, in verse 7, John uh, tells us that, that Peter had to put a shirt on because he was stripped for work. You know, Peter was not being slothful in the boat all night. He was working hard, giving it his all. Uh, he was working with all his might trying to catch fish, but in his own strength, he didn't get anywhere. Well, so we see that Jesus is not powerless. Jesus has not abandoned them. But also, I think they see that Jesus is not negligent toward them. And lastly, we see that um, Jesus cares about them. You know, what I mean to point out here is, is the simplest of things. In verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. <laughs> you know, it's so simple, but like throughout the Gospels, Jesus uh, understands what it means to be human, and he meets them where they need to be met. He meets their needs in a in, in an incredibly tangible way. It's just important sometimes to pause and see that in spite of everything he has been through, you know, having created the universe and everything in it, having entered into his own creation and exper experiencing death, having been raised from the dead, Jesus cares for his people. He knew how tired and hungry the disciples must have been, and he provides for them. He knows the numbers of hairs and the number of hairs on their heads. He knows what we need before we ask him. He is not negligent in his care for us. So these are, these are things that I think the disciples needed to see in Jesus. And Jesus shows up and reveals himself to them in, in these incredibly specific ways. He calls to mind their, their beginning he, he provides for them in an intimate way. He, he shares a meal with them, shows them that, that he is still their friend, he is still for them, and he is not powerless, that they can still count on him. Well, lastly, <clears throat> we have the restoration of Peter. You know, there's um, so much that we could say about this passage. So much has been said about this passage. Uh, let's just read through it real quick, starting in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. So some of you <clears throat> may be aware of uh, some of the differences in uh, the Greek words that are translated love in this passage. Um, for the sake of time, I, I don't want to go into it fully, but um, I will say that at first, as I read through this passage, I found it really compelling, the, the differences in the, in the uses of the word. Um, uh, but the more I, I looked into it, the more I... Um, came to see that John, uh, as he's writing this, and, and Jesus in particular, they don't seem to see any significant difference in the two words that are used for love um, throughout the gospel. Um, as a matter of fact, they're, they're often uh, used inter interchangeably. Uh, um, we see uh, as um, uh, you know, John refers to himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved, that word love there Throughout the gospel, John uses both both terms for, for love there, in the same exact context. You know, so um, oftentimes agapao is used um, in uh, positive and negative. Uh, you know, the world's love, Jesus' love, the Father's love. Same thing with phileo. Um, so they're they're <clears throat> they seem to be used interchangeably. And so, um, whereas I'm not like. Um, it very well could be part of the layered um, uh, condescension of Jesus there to to um, meet Peter where he's at. That's, that very well could be, but I just don't think that I could find the the evidence there to to truly support it in the text. But <clears throat> but um, um, uh, I, I, so I want to focus just on what I think is the true heart of the passage here, which is Peter's restoration. And as I noted in the beginning of our time <clears throat> together this morning, I think the main point of these three passages taken together can be summed up like this. Jesus' resurrection means a continuation of his earthly ministry through his redeemed disciples. And this, this section here, Peter's restoration, is truly at the heart of that theme. So let's notice a few things, first of all. Like... Um, like earlier in the, in the passage of the catching of the fish, there are echoes of uh, previous events in Jesus' life and ministry. So, first of all, um, earlier we saw that the setting is in front of a charcoal fire. Now, that may just be, you know, um, that may just seem like, okay, Jesus had a fire going on the beach. That's great. But um, this word is only used twice in the New Testament. Uh, as far as I'm aware, and once is in here in verse 9, the setting where Jesus cooks the fish, <clears throat> and the second is in chapter 18 of the Gospel of John, where Peter denies Jesus three times. So we're being called back to this place where, where, G where Peter has um, denied Jesus, you know, once in front of the little girl, and then this two other times. It's all, it all happens, it says... Uh, as they're warming themselves by a charcoal fire. Well, the second thing 
I think uh, <clears throat> we see is that Jesus, instead of referring to Peter as Peter, Simon Peter, uh, Cephas, um, he refers to him as Simon, son of John, which is the same way that Jesus first addresses Peter in John 1, 42, before he names him Peter. So he says, um, he says um, you are Simon, son of John, you will be uh, Cephas, you will be Peter. So with this in view, I think we can see a clearer picture of what Jesus is doing here by setting up the charcoal fire and allowing Peter to confess his love for Jesus three times in contrast with his, the three denials that Jesus is bringing Peter back to, to uh, his darkest moment. You know, what, what I would imagine Peter regrets most of all, Jesus allows him to redeem himself. You know, if I were Peter at this point, or, or um, think back to him, uh, him in the boat just before Jesus shows up. You know, if I were Peter at that point, I would probably be fixating, going over and over in my mind, fixating on some of the big mistakes related to Jesus and his ministry. I don't know if you do this, but I have a terrible tendency to, to rerun, uh, to play reruns in my mind of some of my biggest mistakes, you know. It's like a highlight reel of dumb things that I've said or done. done. If I'm Peter here, I'm hearing a few things. Get behind me, Satan. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. Oh, you of little faith, how long am I to be with you, faithless generation? But most of all, I, I think if I were Peter, I would be fixating on, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Well, <clears throat> Jesus wipes that all away in this passage, doesn't he? You know, I, um, I played basketball in high school. Um, that was probably my favorite sport to play. Um, we had a player on the team who was, um, he was uh, so much better than the rest of us that it was crazy. Um, he was tall, athletic, fast, he could shoot. He was the only one on the team who could dunk. Um, so that right there, you know, was step above everybody else. Um, clearly the most talented player on our team. But he also had the worst attitude on the team. You know, if a call didn't go his way, or if he, was <clears throat> or if he wasn't making his shots early in the game, <clears throat> he became pretty much useless the rest of the game. Um, he'd walk down the court, get fouls for pushing the other team, blame his teammates. He'd go from being the best player on the team to being a detriment to the team. All, all because he couldn't get past his mistakes. <clears throat> you know, it's not a perfect parallel, but I think something similar is happening here with Peter. Jesus doesn't want Peter fixating on his past mistakes. He wants Peter back in the game. Notice that it's not just that Peter has the chance to confess his love for Jesus. You know, uh, Jesus doesn't just ask him and allow him re to respond. Um, after he does so, after Peter responds with, I love you, each time Jesus calls him into service. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus needed Peter to know that his sin was paid for and dealt with on the cross and that Jesus did not want Peter on the sideline. 
but that he wanted Peter to carry on his earthly ministry. And, and Jesus doesn't say here, feed your sheep. He says, feed my sheep. Jesus is calling Peter back into the ministry, the ministry that he was promised. Remember at the end of Luke 5, Jesus promises Peter that he would make Peter a fisher of men. And with the background of that miracle, I can't help but think that this was Jesus' point. To make sure that Peter was ready for the work that Jesus had for him to do. Jesus did not go to the cross so that Peter would feel bad about himself for failing. He went to the cross to take away the sins of the world, to free Peter from the guilt and shame that he's stuck in right now. You know, I recently heard a, a well-known pastor say that God wants our repentance, but he does not want us to grovel. When we, when we come to the Lord with our sin, having turned away from it, we are coming for forgiveness. For Jesus to remind us that it has already been paid for. We can get this, this twisted notion in our heads that our repentance is actually some sort of um, asceticism where we, we have to feel really badly about ourselves and, and punish ourselves for sinning. But in doing so, what are we saying? We're saying that, that we can in some way atone for our sins by punishing ourselves. We're saying that, that Jesus' atonement for us isn't enough. We need to, we need to punish ourselves. It, it's, the, it's the opposite of trusting in Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Paul reminds us in Galatians that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. He says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The yoke and burden that that, uh, and slavery that the Bible is speaking about is, uh, is a yoke of self-reliance. The thought that we can do it on our own, atone for our own guilt, build our own internal plan of salvation to prove ourselves wor worthy of what Jesus has done. Jesus shows up here, first on the shore and now to Peter, to put that thought to bed. He comes to Peter uh, he comes to redeem Peter from all of the burdens that Peter car has carried, to cast his sins as far as the east is from the west. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He's coming to restore Peter, to ensure that he is ready to do what, what God has called him to do. He says, you know, these past three years, they have not been a waste because of, just because of your, your failure there in that moment does not, um, you know, Peter, you're, you're not important enough to, to derail God's plan for salvation <laughs> or God's plan for your life. Jesus wants Peter to get back in the game, to feed his sheep, to care for his people, and you know, I think I think we just see a beautiful um, picture of of what this looks like to Peter <clears throat> as Peter writes his letter in First Peter um, near the end of First Peter. He says this. He says, "So 
I, exult, I exhort the elders among you. This is 1 Peter 5, verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter encourages these men, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know, where did Peter get that picture of what a shepherd is? You know, Jesus, the, sh- the chief shepherd. These, these past years, Jesus has been, has been um, discipling Peter in the ways of a shepherd. And here, he, he wants Peter to know that, that he's not, uh, that the end for Peter is not those denials. He wants Peter to see that <clears throat> there is much that he has yet to do. So we see that Jesus' resurrection means a continuation of his ministry on earth through his redeemed disciples. Jesus restores Peter here so that he can continue uh, Jesus' work on earth. You know, and, and I just want to, I think we can extend this, <clears throat> you know, this is true of Peter, but it's, it's true of the, the other disciples as well. And it's true of us. We, we can get so um, bogged down by our own sin that we fail to see the hope on the other side. We fail to see the promises that God has, has made to us and that he has already accomplished in his son. We need to, like Peter, dive into the waters of forgiveness headfirst. Experience the refreshing um, washing of his, uh, of his forgiveness over us. After the, the toil of a long night of uh, you know, relying on our, on our own effort, we need to run to Jesus and see that uh, he has work for us to do. You know, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good work. He has, he has uh, we have not been redeemed simply for our own good pleasure. We have been redeemed for uh, the good of the world, for the, the feeding of the sheep, for upbuilding of the body. And, uh, and we don't want to miss out on that. Jesus has better things for us than to wallow in our sin. He has set us free for a purpose. And I just encourage you all, if you are a Christian here today, do not, um, do not listen to the evil one who is whispering in your ear that you are not good enough, that you have failed him and that he is going to abandon you now. Do not listen to that voice. Run to Jesus with your sin and he will restore you. And if you're not a Christian here, and you've never experienced this sort of freedom, this, uh, if you feel that burden of sin, he is the only hope. He is the only one who can, uh, 
who can take that burden upon himself. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. He took our burden of sin, bore it on the cross, took the punishment of our sin so that, so that we can be free, so that we can live a life that is not burdened down by sin and shame and guilt. So brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. This is the gospel, and we must never lose sight of it. Even as we're about to you know, partake in the body and blood of Jesus Christ, this is what we're remembering, that Jesus has paid for our, um, our ability to, to live as free men and women in the world. We can put down our burdens and, and uh, live as he has intended us to live. So let's, let's um, pray to that end. Father, uh, Lord, we are so thankful for who you are, for what you have done, Lord. We, um, you sent your son into the world to redeem a people who were not worthy of your redemption. And yet you, you, you do it anyway, Lord. Even while we were Still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, and, and it's not just that we are freed from our own burden of, of guilt, Lord, but, but you give us a plan and a purpose, Father, a mission to accomplish. And Lord, we long to, um, to please you. Lord, we long to see that mission accomplished here in Fredericksburg, throughout the world, Lord. We long to see people come to know you and find that same gift that we have received, to find it so sweet. Lord, so we ask for power, the resurrection power, that the same spirit that raised you from the dead, Jesus our Lord, lives in us. We ask for boldness. We ask for eyes that see through the darkness of shame and guilt into the light of your promises. So Father, we, th we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your heart for your people, Lord. And we pray that, that you would um, keep us, Lord, keep us true, hold us fast. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope.